Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Uh, We will be reading today from Matthew 5, uh, verses 27 through 32. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is for you to lose one part of your body, then for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Sorry, let me switch mics. It has been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adult makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, So, today, we are continuing and restarting our series that we started back in the fall called Thy Kingdom Come. Uh, Before Advent, we had started looking at how Jesus expects his people, those in the kingdom, to live in this world. Because the way in which his people live in the world speaks volumes about the kingdom itself. Christians are called to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible. And so as a result, how Christians live really matters. And as we've seen over the course of that series, Jesus leaves no part of our lives untouched. And today, we're going to be looking at Jesus' direct and unambiguous teaching on one of the most basic and yet contentious issues of human experience, sex. Now, I've said this before, and I will say it again because it holds up, but there are probably two topics that people are least interested talking about in church, money and sex. And today, you're going to get one of the two, and even better, it's the first Sunday of the new year. Whatever reason, God decided this was the year, or this was the day, and this was going to be the year when the first sermon was going to be about sex. Now, Why are these topics so often so uncomfortable for us, money and sex? I mean, the reason being is because so often money and sex are interwoven with our sense of personhood. And because in the world, we're so often, whenever we look at uh, um, different injustices or problems that occur in the world, almost always you can tie back injustices and exploitations back to issues of money and sex. These are big deal things that impact very much of our lives. In fact, Jesus is constantly talking about these issues. He talks about them regularly. And so it's important for us to take now this passage of scripture and consider what Jesus wants us to understand about wants us to understand about sex because it is of great significance. So with that in mind, we need to catch the gravity of Christ's teaching and what I want to do is I want to look at it in three different ways. We're going to take a look at how sex relates to covenant. We're going to take a look at how there are consequences for breaking that covenant. And then finally we're going to take a look at how sex and the gospel go together. So we're going to take a look at covenant, consequences, and the gospel. 
right? Let's do that together. So first, with covenant, uh, there's really no way to approach Jesus' teaching on sex without addressing the covenant nature of sexual relationships from a biblical perspective. And what I mean by that is this. Look at verse 27. It says that you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Let me just stop there for a moment. What is that exactly? Well, that is the seventh commandment from the Ten Commandments. But even more, that is the basic summary of the Bible's teaching on sex. Specifically, that sex is to be confined, from again, from the biblical perspective, confined within the covenant relationship of marriage. Now, this, of course, I recognize, flies in the face of modern notions of sex that root sex not in covenant, but rather in personal autonomy and personal pleasure and personal fulfillment. And this teaching of Jesus, for many, is just an old-fashioned, archaic, outdated understanding of sex. But what I want to do for a moment is to argue that it's not actually outdated, but that it's actually vital in understanding the essence, the purpose, the meaning of sex. And so to start, we need to start with that reality of covenant relationships, because covenant relationships are not something we intuitively understand, especially in the West. So much of our lives tend to revolve around transactional relationships and are designed around quid pro quos, meaning you meet my needs, I will meet your needs. When you cease to meet my needs, I have the freedom to move on. Of course, there are countless types of relationships that are designed that way. I mean, nearly every business relationship is designed that way. I mean, this is what makes you know, a company like Amazon what it is. Because a company like Amazon, they've recognized what the customer wants. And then, of course, they push their employees to do whatever it takes to meet our needs. And as long as they keep pushing... And frankly, as long as they keep getting more and more extreme and making my life more convenient, I'll stick around with them. But we also know that we have zero loyalty to Amazon outside of them pleasing us. Most relationships are built that way. As long as you are pleasing me or as long as you are benefiting me, I'll stick around. Covenant relationships, however, are not that Instead, covenant relationships are those kinds of relationships where two parties, they seek not only their personal needs to be met, but also they commit to meeting the needs of the other. It's a relationship where one gives themselves for the good, for the benefit, for the growth of the other, and the other does so for them as well, regardless of what life might bring. You know, in premarital counseling, I always spend quite a bit of time on this idea, and if you've been through premarital counseling with me, you know that this is true. Uh, You can affirm this. But essentially, when a couple is seeking to get married, they ought to really first think about the fact that they are ceasing to think only about themselves and what they want, what they need, what they desire. And now, they need to take into account the needs of their spouse or prospective spouse. I mean, selfishness within marriage is so often the root of so many different conflicts, so many relational breakdowns. At its best, when two people are willing to give their whole selves to each other, 
seeking the best for one another, uh, committing to serving and loving and growing together, that's a flourishing relationship. And when this kind of relationship exists, there's safety, there's comfort, there's security, because you know that whatever life might bring, whether you're at your best or at your worst, whether you're in the midst of happiness or you're suffering through depression, whether you're sick or you're healthy, for better or for worse, the person that you're with is in covenant bonds with you. They will be there to serve you. And when they are in need of you, you serve them. And when, they are, when you are in need of them, they serve you. This is the kind of covenant relationship that God describes and that God determined that it's within that relationship that sex ought to be used. Now, sex outside of that covenant is often, not always, but often the exact opposite. It's often not giving our whole lives, our whole selves to another, but instead, it's like saying, I want you to please me, including sexually. I am not willing... I may be, I'm sorry, uh, I may even be willing to please you as well, but I do need to keep my independence. I do need to keep my freedom. I do need to keep my autonomy. I am willing to give you my body, and I'm willing for you to give me yours, but I can't fully commit to you because I need an easy way out in case this whole thing doesn't work. I mean, if that's the case, how is that any different than the relationship that we have with Amazon? It's transactional. Give me what I want until I no longer get what I want, and then I need an easy way out. It's based on an assumption that I can just move on whenever things get hard or are no longer fulfilling. And do you know what that creates? That creates an, an environment of constantly needing to measure up, constantly needing to try to satisfy, constantly needing to perform. It's an environment where weakness or failure or hardship or sickness all become reasons for the possible end of the relationship. So often, that leaves relationships on very shaky ground. If there's an inability to measure up, inability to be good enough, and sex becomes just one more avenue to not measure up and to not be good enough. Sex outside of covenant is a willingness to be physically naked and vulnerable without having to be whole life naked and vulnerable with another one, with another person. Now, the last thing I will say is on this is that covenant is the mutual giving of oneself to another. And so as a result, a true covenant will interweave lives physically, emotionally, and even legally. It's a relationship that ought to be very difficult to get out of. And Jesus gets at this a bit. Look at verses uh, 31 and 32. He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I can't spend too much time on this, but the Bible does give justifiable grounds for the breaking of covenant relationships in divorce. Here, Jesus makes clear that sexual unfaithfulness is grounds for divorce. And this is important to note because it really emphasizes at least how high of a view Jesus has for sexual fidelity and for that to be occurring within the centrality of marriage. 
But I'll also say, just again, I don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but I'll also just say that we do believe that there are other grounds for divorce that we see within Scripture. Uh, specifically, I think about uh, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul argues that abandonment is, a grounds, is grounds for divorce and the breaking of this covenant bond. Uh, as he says in the chapter, that we are not enslaved to marriage. And we would also interpret that passage as including uh, spousal abuse as grounds as well, since that kind of environment is a form of abandonment. I'm happy to talk more about that, any of that, if anybody wants to. But what I really want to just emphasize here is simply that true covenant bonds, the bonds in which sex ought to reside, are not easy to leave, and they shouldn't be easy to leave. That said, why can't sex, why, why does the Bible take this position? Why can't sex just be about personal pleasure? Especially if the two people engaged in the sex act want nothing more than the pleasure. What does it really matter? Well, secondly, let's take a look at the consequences that may occur. Uh, there are several things uh, I want to say about this um, because I recognize that one of the main retorts that may come is that, listen, if all I want from another person and all they want from me is sex or a short-term relationship or just to have some fun, who is that hurting? And what I want to note is that no matter how much someone wants to believe that meaningless, emotionless, commitmentless sex is harmless, the data, the facts, and frankly, the experience of many, it just does not add up. Uh, for one example, a couple of years ago, uh, the Pew Research uh, Institute studied the relational dynamics of those who were married and those who were cohabitating, not married, but living together. And what they found in nearly every single category that they surveyed, I mean, every category, we're talking trust, assurance that the partner was acting in their best interest, uh, honesty, the way the household ran, was run, uh, sex, and a host of other issues they found that the married couples were far more satisfied in the relationship. Why? Because the commitment produced stability and assurance that cohabitation just could not. Everyone within cohabitation relationships knew that they had an easy way out if they needed to. But the, the, the stability and assurance that came within the marriage produced more stability and commitment that then made all the other categories um, higher percentage-wise. Now, that, of course, is within covenant or co uh, committed relationships. But what about sex and se uh, uh, sexual pleasure that's pursued just for the sake of sexual pleasure? Well, Jesus actually gives us some insights into why, by pressing this further, he's saying that God's intention for us is to not only not commit adultery, which we just heard about in a minute, but look at what he says in verse 28. He pushes us even further. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, what's going on there? Well, Jesus is taking the seventh commandment, which was adultery, do not commit adultery. And he's saying that this ought to not be viewed as solely a physical act. But he emphasizes the extent to which that physical act is actually rooted in one's internal life. What exactly is our Jesus articulating there with the notion of lust? What does it mean to lust? Well, the word that's translated here as lust is actually a word that describes more than just sexual desire. 
The word here itself actually speaks more to longings or desires for something, a fixation on something. And throughout the New Testament, this word is used both, both positively and negatively. I mean, even Jesus is said to have had certain longings. But the longings that he had were for things that were noble and holy and righteous. But when this word is used negatively, it's describing a longing for something selfish. It's describing a form of a greed or even covetousness. In many ways, Jesus is combining the seventh commandment, which is do not commit adultery, with the ninth commandment that thou shalt not covenant. According to Jesus here, sexual lust in this context is the desire for or the fixation on sexual pleasure without covenant. It's a desire to possess something that is not yours to possess. It is without fail. And without fail, this uh, tends to happen. Before it ever happens physically, it tends to happen first. This longing for happens first in the heart, in the mind. And Jesus is saying that for his people, this is unacceptable. Now that, of course, is the biblical rationale. But we can't, again, assume that this is just some prudish way to approach sexual desire because the data, again, bears this out as well. Let me give you probably the most blatant example in our modern-day context. I mean, what is the most obvious and blatant form of seemingly meaningless, emotionless, commitmentless sex? I mean, the most obvious example, of course, would be pornography. I mean, pornography is the natural consequence of sex without commitment. It is the embodiment, uh, the disembodiment, rather, of sex from covenant. It is the embodiment of that desire and that lust that Jesus is talking about here. And again, the data shows the extent to which our culture and the most recent generations are being ravaged by this. I mean, you know this. I'm not talking about this from a Christian perspective. I mean, researchers have found that pornography is rewiring brains. It's destroying an entire generation's ability to have meaningful relationships. I mean, relational commitment, and I don't even mean marriage. I'm just talking about meaningful, committed relationships of any kind are beginning to plummet because an entire generation who grew up with a normalcy of porn is losing the interest or ability to interact with others in deep ways. Again, the research is clear that what Jesus is describing here is right. Because in the end, porn has normalized and commodified exploitation. I mean, men and women and even children are exploited for the sexual pleasure of people completely unconcerned about them. And I'll also say that one's willingness to be exploited is no rationale for one's willingness to exploit. It dehumanizes everyone involved. And this, of course, absolutely runs contrary to what God would desire for his people. Now, having said all of that, I also want to say and address something that's very big right now in our current cultural moment. Because what's happening right now, if for those of you that may be, be paying attention, there has been a lot of pushback and rejection of 
not just this whole concept of, of uh, biblical sexuality. Right? That's always been in conflict. But something else that's been really pushed against in recent years is something that maybe some of you are very familiar with, the notion of purity culture. Uh, for those of you that grew up in the 80s and especially the 90s, you know exactly what I'm... If you grew up in the church in the 80s and 90s, you know exactly what I'm talking about with purity culture. Uh, purity culture came with a lot of really terrible teachings and assumptions about sex and lust, and I do not have time to get a full treatment of it. Um, but in essence, purity culture was notorious for putting very high burdens on girls in particular. Girls were responsible in many ways for keeping boys from lusting. Uh, it also put a very high burden on wives to keep their husbands sexually satisfied, both of which, by the way, still come, uh, still are justified uh, too often today and too often become justifications for why one might fall into lustful sin, all of which regularly, implicitly, and sometimes explicitly shifted blame from one's problem and issue with lust to then putting that blame onto someone else. And I'm addressing this now because, one, if that's the impulse that one's lust issue ought to be, the burden of that ought to be put on someone else. I do want to point out something that Jesus says in this passage that we can't ignore. Look at verse 29. Jesus gives no opportunity for blame shifting. He says that if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. Right? This is not a call of Jesus to mutilate ourselves, but it's a call from Jesus to say, do whatever it takes to hold yourself accountable. And within purity culture, this was not and is not the emphasis. Again, if you know anything about purity culture, this is going to sound familiar, but the emphasis of purity culture was to dress modestly, to save yourself for marriage, and then after that, all your sexual desires would then be fulfilled. And here's what I find to be so interesting about purity culture is that even sex within marriage, in, within purity culture, was defined and treated as the fulfillment of my needs. It was still me-focused. I was going to hold uh, off until marriage because one day my sexual desires would then be fulfilled. That is a very me-focused approach to pursuits of purity. It's not others-focused. Even in the midst of people that would hold to the broad sexual ethic, it still became me-focused. Now, is there something to dressing modestly, dressing in a way that's honorable to God? Sure. You know, is it God-honoring and holy and righteous to wait for marriage? Yes, of course. Is it right to go to the extreme to keep oneself from lust? Yes. But here's my question. Why? I mean, what is the motivation? What is the motivation to try and hold to and cling to this biblical sex ethic? Is it just so that we can have secure relationships one day? Is it just so that we don't find ourselves uh, using or exploiting other people for our own sexual desires? It's all of those things, sure, but unless you have a motivation that undergirds all of that, that takes our eyes off of ourselves and puts our eyes onto something far more glorious, Unless we're able to take our eyes off fulfilling our own needs, we will not truly be able to see the beauty that exists within God's good gift of sex. All attempts at fighting against lust will end in vain 
if the motivation is not clear. And that motivation, my friends, finally, is the gospel. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, One of the most jarring uh, aspects of this passage is actually in verses 29 and 30. Jesus says that one who does not do what it takes to resist the allures of meaningless, covetless sex is in danger of hellfire. Now, there's a lot that could be said about what Jesus is saying there. Uh, I should, should just say now that Jesus is not arguing that somehow sexual sin is in some way more damnable than any other sins. However, the kind of selfish, self-oriented, even exploitative sex that he's describing reveals a mindset, a heart posture that rejects covenant. And as a result, even rejects covenant that God desires with his people. It's a heart posture that seeks my own fulfillment, even if that means I do not love God through obedience or others through covenant fidelity. And that self-orientation sets one in the exact opposite of God. Sex outside of covenant fidelity flows from hellish perversions, not heavenly purity. I mean, this is the kind of thing that Jesus is pressing on. But if that's the case, if it is the case that sex without covenant fidelity is pointing us toward hellish perversions, then it should also be true that there's something about sex within covenant fidelity that points not to hellish perversions, but to this heavenly purity. And what I mean is that as weird as it might sound, in many ways, sex ought to be an act of worship that reminds us of the gospel. I mean, what is the gospel? I mean, the gospel is the greatest expression of covenant relationship. The gospel is God stepping into a relationship for the good of those whom he loves. I mean, God needs nothing from us. He steps into that relationship to give for the betterment of those he loves, yet welcomes us into this relationship even though he needs nothing. And even though we were not faithful to him, his love compelled him to pursue us, the unfaithful. The gospel is God keeping his covenant promises to us. The gospel is God's pursuit of us, his fidelity to us, his commitment to our flourishing. The gospel is a story of rapturous love where the bridegroom gives himself for the good of his bride, the church. This is what sex points to. In Ephesians 5, God uses marriage to describe his love, his fidelity, his commitment to his people. And this is the point, my friends, of marriage. I mean, I once heard uh, someone, you know, they were uh, talking about how, you know, when God looked out into the world to find an example of how he loved his people, it's not as though God looked out in the world, he saw marriage, and he was like, hey, that's pretty close to what I'm trying to get at, so let me use that as an example in Ephesians 5 to describe the love that I have for my people. No, that's not how God works. Instead, God gave marriage, gave covenant relationship as a means of providing a picture of his covenant promises. And so sex ought to be a reminder of that covenant. It's a physical act that does reveal and remind us of the covenant bonds. And so let me ask you a a very pointed question. Maybe a little bit awkward, but let me ask you it nonetheless. Have you ever thought about 
rapturous love and sex being an act of worship. I venture to guess that that might feel weird for some people, but I suggest that it only feels weird because we've not seen sex rightly or not used sex rightly. I mean, imagine sex to be used in this way where it becomes this opportunity to worship God in the midst of it and afterward. I mean, this is the kind of thing that sex ought to be doing. Sex as an act of worship is possible for everyone because regardless of whether or not one is having sex, sex itself continues and still points us to this gospel, to this covenant relationship that we have with God. Let me explain to you what I mean. In marriage, the act of sex ought to be a renewal of covenant bonds between spouses, but also points us to God's promises in Christ. And so maybe within marriage, that makes, maybe makes some sense. At least we can get our heads around what maybe God might be doing. But I also want you to know that even in singleness, the abstinence of sex is also a reminder of God's covenant fidelity and the willingness of Christ to sacrifice his own physical desires for our good. I mean, for one, sexual abstinence aligns with the life of Jesus and many others who also lived that kind of life. But more than that, it's a reminder that though I might not experience that rapturous sexual love, I can experience the rapturous love of my Savior who has fully and completely been faithful to me. And so I I bring this up only to say that the presence or the absence of sex in our lives can be a celebration of the gospel when Christ is at the center because he is far more beautiful, far more faithful, far more fulfilling than any sexual experience ever will be. Sex is connected to covenant bonds, covenant relationship, because ultimately it reminds us, it points us to the covenant fidelity of God in Christ to us. And so my encouragement would be for all of us, one, that we would take Jesus' word seriously and trust that this kind of understanding of sex is what he actually desires for us. But that also, even beyond that, we would be able to see as we obey this command of Jesus, that we would be enthralled with not a desire for others, not a desire for sexual pleasure, but ultimately be enthralled with a desire for, fixated on the glories and the beauty of our Savior, the one who loves us, the one who has committed to us, the one who is faithful to us. May God help us make that so. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. It is a faithfulness that we have not deserved. It is a faithfulness we have not earned. And it is a faithfulness that we regularly uh, don't appreciate as we should. But God, the beauty of your gospel is that you are constantly in pursuit of us, even when we are unfaithful. And Lord, ultimately, yes, you have a desire for sex and what sex ought to be. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us all to take seriously the words of Jesus. But Lord, even beyond that, would we not be motivated solely out of a desire to 
uh, obey or to, to uh, keep these commands because we desire something else and we hope that we maybe experience some kind of blessing as a result of obedience. But Lord, ultimately, may we obey because this is an opportunity for us to remember the covenant fidelity, the covenant relationship that you have with us in Jesus. And may that great love that you have for us Make us obedient, not because we feel like we have to be, but make us obedient because we love you and desire to obey you and because we trust you. Again, Lord, would you make that so in us? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.